Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Happy New Year. It is now 2024. Let's just sit with that for a minute. I hope you all had a wonderful and safe New Year celebration, and that the fireworks weren't too bad. Let's kick the year off. This time we are talking about In the Garden of Aiden by Cage Baker. Here is the summary. In the 24th century, the company preserves valuable works of art and extinct forms of life. It recruits orphans from the past, renders them all but immortal with drugs, hormones, and implants, and trains them to serve the company down the long centuries. One of these operatives is Mendoza, sent to Elizabethan England for her inaugural assignment to collect samples of rare plants from the garden of Sir Walter Iden. Yet her quest is jeopardized by the presence of Nicholas Harpole, whose outspoken religious beliefs conflict with those of Queen Mary. His courtly manner penetrates Mendoza's trained, cool detachment and stirs unfamiliar emotions within her. Now she must contemplate the prospect of her future with a man she will long outlive. In the Garden of Aiden was published in 1997. It is the first book in the Company series, which comprises eight-ish novels, eight to ten books, we'll say, and approximately five million short stories. Our author, Cage Baker, was born in California, where she lived her entire life. She worked as a graphic artist and mural painter and had a long career working on stage shows, during which she also wrote novels. Very busy. From an archived version of her website, she describes herself as an avid gardener, birdwatcher, spinster aunt, and Jethro Tull fan. She died in 2010. I'm pretty sure this book came from my uncle's shelf. It's been living in my brother's house for the last decade or so, but to me, it'll always be my uncle's and not my brother's. It's possible that I think of it this way solely to annoy my brother. Um, he probably doesn't care, but the possibility of annoying him is just enough to make me do it. That's just what it's like to have siblings. Anyway, my point is that this book has been in the family for a while. And In the Garden of Aiden is a historical science fiction? Historical fantasy? Let's say historical science fiction, kind of, because of the use of technology specifically. It really feels like an excuse to write a historical fiction with a modern-ish protagonist who has the benefit of knowing how history will unfold around them. This was helpful to me uh, because I'm not very familiar with the 1500s in Europe. I don't know if it's annoying for people who are very familiar with the time period, but I liked that Baker would slip explanations for how current events around the characters would unfold over the next few years. It works with her story conceit, with all the time travel stuff, and I think she folded it into the narration very well. So let's set the stage. 
In the future, the company, capital C, actual name something like Dr. Zeus, Inc., has discovered time travel, but only to the past, and immortality, but only by basically turning you into a cyborg. I'm sure this company will use these innovations only for good and not for profit. (laughs) So they set out to use time travel to go back and, rather than influence or change events, which they can't do anyway and they don't know what the end result would be if they did, but I'm pretty sure part of this book is them spending a good chunk of time saying they can't change most of what happens. So what they do is they go back in time and rescue long-extinct plants and animals and works of art for the future, which they then use to generate profit for the company. (laughs) Well, what did you expect? Our narrator, Mendoza, is telling her origin story, basically, how the company found and rescued her, her first mission for them, her first love, her first loss... As a narrator, Mendoza is jaded, tired from a long life of working for the company and watching endless years roll by. I don't remember if she specified, like, where she was in the present as she's looking back on the past. She has the benefit of a long perspective to reflect on her early life to try to make sense of how she got to where she is now. Early Mendoza is young and naive and still believes in the mission of the company, still believes that the work she will do for them will improve the future. It's pretty cool. Go back and save extinct things. The story proper begins in Spain in the 1500s. Mendoza is taken from her family when she's young, too young to know much of anything, including her own name. She ends up in the dungeons of the Inquisition through a series of unfortunate events. Scared, confused, alone, and I point out a child, a man appears and offers her a way out. Join the company's mission. The choice between dying and not dying is an easy one, usually. She goes and spends over a decade in a company school being surgically changed into an immortal cyborg and being taught history, which is the future for her. And she's also in this process learning to think of herself as an entirely separate kind of being, that she is no longer really human, and by virtue of all the things she can do, that she is better than humans. Her first assignment is in Bonnie Old England in the 1550s. You may be familiar with such hits as the Church Reformation, spurred by Henry VIII's desire to have lots of wives. Well, not lots, just, you know, a bunch of different ones at different times, leading to let's say, some very nasty fights over the succession for the throne of England, including Jane Grey's nine days as queen. Uh, And then, you know, good old Queen Mary got the throne for a hot minute. Um, And then there were some subsequent 
burning at the stake of Protestants. So that's not great. What a time to be in England. So into this cesspit of humanity, a young immortal is taken with two senior operatives to this to the estate of Sir Walter Iden in Kent to preserve a number of plants only found there. Plants that will soon be extinct without the company's intervention, or so they say. There is always the possibility that what they are doing in the past, the things they are changing, is actually what's causing the extinction of the plants that they are profiting from in the future. Um, that's something Mendoza considers um, and thinks about. We are not, in this book, we're pretty distant from, like, the inner workings of the company. I'm sure that is something that later books get into more, but she's, like, very far on the periphery of the company in terms of, like, you know, it's her first mission and she's only been around this is like within her natural lifespan she is still here whereas the the senior operatives she is with are from a thousand years ago or 400 years ago or something and therefore they have like a better picture of what of what the company is like and how it operates there's one of the things that they do in order to get these plants is they go to Sir Walter Iden and they start, like, giving him treatments from technology from the future that are, like, vastly improving his health, leading to him deciding to move to London and sell his estate to somebody who won't care for it. So Mendoza looks at the situation that they've created and goes, hey, what if we hadn't, like, come here and done this and given this guy the idea that he can, like, have a whole second life, maybe he would have stayed here and cared for this estate and, like, found a successor who would have also taken care of it. It's just going to be one of those questions she'll be thinking about forever and I'll be wondering about, too. Um, so at Iden, young Mendoza's easy confidence in her mission and her natural superiority over humans is challenged by the existence of, gasp, a man, Nicholas Harpole. Harpole is tall, intellectual, and has interesting ideas about faith, which put him in some danger in the current political climate. Mendoza is a young immortal, so I will forgive her for falling into the he's-not-like-the-other-humans trope. Trap. Poor thing. She convinces herself over time spent with him that like he could accept what she is and who she is um and that they could run away together basically but that's not going to be what happens there is this tension throughout the book between old and new ways of thinking not just with, like, the Catholic versus Protestant thing in England, but also with, like, Mendoza's atheism and foreknowledge versus Harpole's faith and grounding in the present and his hopes for the future of England. Mendoza is supposed to be an impartial observer, but she finds herself getting drawn 
more and more into the concerns of the present day. As Harpole's radical ideas put him in danger, he stumbles upon Mendoza's secret, the fact that she is not entirely human, and he runs away. How do you explain being an immortal cyborg to a man born in the 1500s? Where do you even start? Honey, I'm made of metal. She's not entirely made of metal. She's just got, like, implants and stuff. Also, how do you convince that guy you're not just a demon messing with him? You can't. Or maybe you could if he didn't run away from you. Anyway, he throws himself into danger, and Mendoza chases after him, putting her own very long future in jeopardy for the chance to rescue him. Young Mendoza hasn't quite given up hope. She thinks she can save Harpole, and they can escape from the company's reach and live out his life somewhere far away, where they don't burn people at the stake for heresy. There's nothing to do about the tides of history as a whole, but maybe you can save one man from its inevitable flow. The Mendoza who is narrating, however, has seen too much and spent too long with the company to believe she ever had a chance at a happy ever after. And uh, the book does end kind of on a downer. How dare a book make me sad, I say, having read a book that starts with the main character getting dumped into the dungeons of the Spanish Inquisition. Like, I can't say I wasn't warned. Even though it did make me sad, I enjoyed this book. I haven't decided if I will continue the series. Um, I have book three, but I don't have book two, and my library doesn't have it. Um... I bet these books read fine as standalones, but I don't really like hopping around in a series. Not if I can help it. Um, unless I've read it all before, and then who cares? So we'll see if Sky Coyote makes its way into my hands somehow. I'm sure starting another long series would be totally fine, I say, shoving the rest of the Vorkosigan saga and the Wheel of Time out of sight. Uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> if you want more media like this, uh, whew, maybe. Here's an idea. Grass by Sherry Tepper, which I have recommended several times. I should read it again. And also, maybe To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis, which is also my go-to, like, time travel recommendation, and which I should read again. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time since I have read it. Hmm. I'll think about it. Join me next time to hear about Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. As always, you can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it. The best way to do that right now is to rate and review it, or just share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast, or at BacklogBooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at JosephMcDade.com. 
Thank you for spending this time with me. Happy New Year. We did it. I hope to talk with you again soon.